Well, welcome this morning to the Way Church. We're glad to have you, each and every one of you here uh, this morning worshiping with us. Made it in through the rain, I see. Um, I was making comment this morning, if, if uh, this had only been snow, right? Everybody would be super happy about that. I would. Um, I know not many people would, but um, we're glad you're here this morning. One of the pastors here at The Way, uh, typically I uh, get the honor and blessing of leading worship in singing, uh, but this week and last week I get the uh, honor of preaching the word because Seth and uh, team are in Africa right now. So uh, the first team has made it back into the capital city, actually should be traveling back today. Uh, and the second team left yesterday morning. We saw them off at the airport, prayed for them, um, and they are headed now out to uh, the second village to proclaim the gospel. And just so um, we can rejoice together in this and be thinking upon it and stirring our own hearts in this uh, reality, the team that, that uh, is coming back uh, I don't know if you guys saw the update from, from Amy on Realm, but uh, they saw three professed faith while they were there, um, and they got to baptize one. That's an awesome, awesome thing. Uh, to think that uh, four years ago we walked into that village and there was not a single person there who knew the name of Jesus, who worshiped Jesus, who thought of Jesus as anything other than maybe a good teacher, um, to have renounced their faith in, in Islam, in Allah, and have worshipped and said, Jesus is my Lord, is my God, um, and lose their family, they lose their homes, they lose just about everything in that, in that endeavor. And so that is um, an amazing work of the Spirit. And so um, just let your heart set on that this morning, be happy in that, that's a great thing, that's the reason we go. Um, we don't do a lot of humanitarian aid, we go to proclaim the gospel that hearts might be changed, that lives might be changed. And so uh, the spirit was at work, God was at work, and so uh, we get to rejoice in that. That's uh, good. Luke 10, uh, verse 25 is where we're going to be this morning. If you want to turn in your Bibles there. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the chair back in front of you. You're welcome to use that, take it, read it, it's yours. Um, the Version app that's on your phone as well, Android or iOS, that there's a, an event out there for The Way Church, and you're welcome to follow along with the outline on there as well. Um, either way, whichever works for you. But we're going to be in, in Luke 10, verses 25 through 37, a very familiar passage of Scripture this morning, a very familiar story as we talk about the Good Samaritan. And so I'd ask this of, of you, of my own heart. I'll tell you, this was quite a struggle for me this week uh, as I read this. Uh, let us not come to God's word with presupposed ideas that I know what God has for me in his word today. That because he has changed me or said something to me through this text previously, I know exactly what it is that he has to say for me today. Um, but let us come with fresh eyes, a fresh heart, that we might see the gospel, we might see Christ and his words as new, as powerful for our own hearts this morning. All right, uh, Luke 10 verse 25 is where we're going to start. It says this, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, 
A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and he saw him. And he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let's pray this morning and just ask God to speak to us through his word, all right? Uh, Heavenly Father, we come to you in prayer um, because we recognize our need for you this morning. That there is a uh, vast difference between us and you is, is shortchanging uh, the reality would you speak to us through your word as you have promised? Holy Spirit, would you um, just uh, give power to our eyes and our hearts to see um, and to believe the truths of Christ this morning, to hear of your gospel and to be changed, to repent of sin as it might be brought to light in our heart by your conviction and um, that we would repent well um, of that sin. Would you, God, not let your word return void, but um, in every way help Uh, me to serve and speak, help us to listen uh, well in the strength that you supply that in everything, every single thing this morning you might be glorifying. pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it had been 497 days since the crew had been on land, and illness, freezing temperatures, and predators were making the prospect of life look very grim. The year was 1915, and over a year ago, explorer Ernest Shackleton and his crew had left on an expedition to be the first to cross the whole of Antarctica via the South Pole. But on their way, their boat had been trapped by ice, and eventually the the ice comes and it crushes the boat, leaving the men and the, the crew to float about and live on pieces of ice that are floating on the top of the ocean. They were in desperate need for food and supplies. And finally, the ice cleared enough for them to take the three lifeboats, three lifeboats that they had saved from the wreckage, to travel seven days on stormy seas with freezing weather and conditions to an island. It's the very first island that they had seen, any first land they had seen in upwards of 500 days. But it was uninhabited and it had very few resources being so near to the South Pole. Uh, They were not going to be able to survive much longer there. Many men were sick. Supplies were running low. So Shackleton and a handful of men chanced the impossible. They left in one lifeboat for South Georgia Island, an island over 1,000 miles away, where there was a small whaling outpost to see if they could get help. And despite almost dying of thirst, losing their anchor, and suffering through more storms and gales, the crew finally made it to the island, but like some kind of terrible tragedy, they find out that they're on the wrong side of the island. 
And nobody has ever crossed this island because it's unsafe, because the terrain is too steep, as much of it is mountain. So Shackleton and his men, using only a rope, begin to cross the island. And at one point, they're so blinded by fog that the team knew they had to, they had to climb down a little bit lower so they could see where they're going. So they tie the rope to themselves, get on their rear ends, and slide on their bottoms 2,000 feet down the side of this mountain so that they can make it to this whaling outpost. And in the end, they finally make it. And not only do they make it, but Shackleton and his team, then over the, next of the, uh, over the course of the next three months, they go back four times uh, to get his men finally succeeding and saving all of their lives. Now that's a story, right? That's, that's the kind of story that we love to hear and we want to hear about. We like reading about. We like seeing movies made about. Because there's something, just something innate in us that tells us that, that when there's such an incredible need and the odds are against every single person to see the hero come through, that's what we're longing for, right? And to see lives saved or lives flourished as, as this hero does the impossible. What should have been unattainable becomes attained in their hand. We love and long for these kinds of stories. And I think um, as we come to very familiar Bible stories like the Good Samaritan, it's easy for us to quickly find the hero in the story, the man on the road, right? He was beaten half to death. He's dying. His life is at stake. But despite the dangers of other robbers and other thieves, despite the reality that many had passed him by and he, he could possibly die, here comes the hero, the Samaritan. And yet if we're to truly look at the story in the context of Israel, of their culture and prejudices, what makes this story so striking is that the Samaritan actually should be the villain, not the hero. It should be an Israelite who, who wins, a, a person of the people of God who works the impossible, who comes to the rescue, and yet the elite socially and religiously of Israel end up actually kind of being the villains and the roles kind of get flip-flopped. And then on top of it all, the Israelite man, this lawyer to whom this story is being told, <clears throat> is not actually being given an example that he's supposed to live up to, but instead he's being shown that he is utterly unable to actually be the hero of the story. What makes the story of the Good Samaritan so actually striking is that this isn't given to us as an example, like something for us to live up to or to be like. It wasn't given to be an encouragement. This story, this parable was actually given to explain the law. This was a parable shared to show the lawyer's need, to show our need. This was a story where we can't, in fact, relate to the hero, but actually we can relate more to the victim. It was meant to show our helplessness, our inability, our desperation for somebody, somebody to come and save us. What Jesus is desiring to reveal through this parable, through these words in Luke this morning, I think, is this. That we are in, in fact, absolute need and desperation for the gospel. For the gospel of Jesus, because without the gospel, we are unable to have to inherit eternal life. And that's really the question, that's the issue that's at stake here in these verses, right? It's stated right there in verse 25. The lawyer begins with this, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And while the parable uh, honestly might be explaining a finer point 
of the answer to this question. This question is still, at the end of the day, what is seeking to be answered. And so what I want to do today is look at three things I think we see in this text Three hopes that I think we see rise to the surface that our heart so longs for in this story. Three things that we think might bring us hope to bring us eternal life. Hope to answer this question. So uh, let's look there at the very first few verses, right? And we see that, that we have this lawyer who stands up and he wants to put Jesus to the test, it says. So at some level, they're all sitting around, and it says that he very obviously stood up and wants to put Jesus to the test. I, you know, I kind of see this dude, like, throwing out his chest. And, and, and can I just say, trying, as a quick side note, trying to put Jesus to the test, um, maybe not the smartest thing you can do. It's like trying to, like, go to arm wrestle the strongest man in the world and thinking you have a chance, Right? You just end up looking kind of foolish, but regardless, this is where we find, find ourselves in Luke. And, and notice there that as we transition into these verses, it doesn't say that this is in a different time frame than the verses we looked at prior in, in last week's uh, sermon. It seems fitting that Jesus, in the, the few verses before, has just praised the Father that these things of salvation and God have been hidden from the wise and the understanding of this world. And yet, here we have the wise and the understanding trying to prove and stand up to God and prove Jesus wrong. And so we have the 72, they've returned, right, from proclaiming this message of salvation, the good news that the kingdom has come near to us in Jesus Christ. And they're proclaiming this message of salvation, of eternal life. And so this teacher, this lawyer and defender of the law stands up and I think at some level recognizes that this message that Jesus is sending these 72 out to preach and proclaim seems to maybe contradict the law or at the very least not have much to do with it at all. And so he's standing up and he's looking to put Jesus to the test because he realizes maybe I got him here. Right? Maybe I've got him. And so he asks him smugly, I think, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so we come to what I think is the first, the first of the hopes that we see in this text. Because Jesus asks him then the question, what is written in the law? How do you read it? We come to the first of our hopes and the hope is in the law. Because from the mouth of the lawyer, in response to his own question, right, Jesus asks him uh, back to himself, more or less. We hear two verses, actually. These are, these are verses that are quoted from the law. They're cited directly from Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. They're kind of combined together, right? And we hear what's referred to, uh, the Israelites called it the Shema, Right? This, is, this is something that they repeated and quoted often. This part of the law that the Israelites were called by on God to think upon often, to remember often. In fact, in the passage in Deuteronomy that this is quoted from, it goes on to say to the people of Israel that these should be something that are so remembered and so known that they should be posted to their, to their uh, doors. Right, They should be posted to their fence posts. This should be something they talk to their kids about when they wake up, when they go to bed, as they're walking to work, no matter where they're at, this should be the thing they're, th they're talking about and thinking about. So much so that he even says it should be like frontlets between your eyes. And so these guys would wear these little chains with, with a remembrance of what the law was right between their forehead, between their eyes, so they could be thinking about this often. So here Jesus has taken the lawyer's question 
And knowing what the lawyer was trying to do, he made him answer his own question because the answer was so glaringly obvious. If this is something that even the small children should know, Jesus is asking him to answer it because it seems foolish that he should ask it in the first place. And so this man comes and he answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength, mind with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says something that I think is crucial, and that I, I don't know, maybe, I don't know how many times I've read this, but I, I just pass over it. But, but he says this, he, he looks at the lawyer and says, you're right. You want to know how to inherit eternal life? Do these two things. This is what you have to do. Do these things and you will live. You're correct. Love the Lord this way. Love your neighbor in this way. And you can have actually eternal life. All the lawyer has to do is obey. So we find our hope in the law in in that moment, right? We figured it out. It's in the law. All we have to do is obey and we get to have eternal life. But in reality, what tends to happen, what actually happens is as we come to the law, our hope in the law actually fails. And it's not because the law itself is flawed, but because we actually are flawed. The law is the words of God. The Psalms tell us time and time again that the law is perfect because they're the words of God. Perfect for things like reviving the soul. Psalm 12, 6 says this about the words of God. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. The law of God is absolutely true and perfect. There is nothing wrong with it. The reason the hope of the law fails us is not because of what it is. God didn't mess up when he spoke. So the law hasn't failed because of what it is. The law is absolutely capable of saving us. The issue is is that we are unable to obey it. Romans 7, 7 talks about it in this way. What Paul says, what then shall we say about the law? What shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. And it goes on to say just a few verses later, the very commandment, the very laws that promised life proved death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. It is not the law that's the issue. We are in fact the problem when it comes to obeying it. Our nature and who we are is sinful. And so in the law, we don't actually find something to obey, but we find something to instead twist and turn into something that we can earn or prove our awesomeness before God. We use it to paint this awesome picture before God about how good we actually are by following the law so that God will really love me, right? Because if I can just do this next thing and if I can just do it that well, he'll actually like me. He'll accept me. He'll give me eternal life, right? Like if I just do all of these things correctly, God will think well of me. But all the law does is lead to pride. Because as we feel like we're succeeding, I don't know if any of you have experienced this, but as we feel like we're succeeding in obeying God and doing what he's called us to do, all of a sudden there's something in me that feels good. 
But it's not because of who God is, but because God must love me more now, right? I've done all of these good things. He must think a lot better of me now because I've done all these things to make him like me more. Or on the reverse, instead of pride, what we tend to find as we come to the law is unending despair. Because all we do as we come to it time and time again is we find that we fail. And we fail. And there's no point in continuing on because I fail. And I just can't seem to get it done. And so my spirit inside of me dwindles and I end up in this place of despair. That's all the law can lead us to is either this pride in ourselves we want to twist it to or this despair because we can't fulfill it. And I find this in my heart so often, but what I'm thinking about in those moments, though I know that I'm saved by Jesus and his works, all I'm considering in that moment and putting my hope in is the law and my ability to fulfill it or my inability to fulfill it. It's about me in that moment, not about Jesus. My hope is in the law. If I can just make it work for me, if I can just do it, then I'll have the joy. I can have the salvation that I'm looking for. And I think this is where where the lawyer must have found himself, right? He's looking foolish because he's asked a question that a child should be able to answer, and he's some lawyer. So he looks foolish But even more so, as he hears the response, he recognizes, I think, a level of the impossibility of it all. That if I'm supposed to love the Lord, my God, with this kind of strength, and if I'm supposed to love my neighbor this much, I got a lot of questions to begin asking because I... Oh, that makes me question myself. Maybe I can't do it, right? And so he he comes to this thing, and I, I think this is the natural reaction of all of us in this moment when we feel like we just can't do it says there in verse 29, but he desiring to justify himself. So I can't do it. I can't do it. Maybe I can't do it. Jesus has kind of made me look dumb. He's trying to say that that I can't even fulfill the law, right? At some level, that's what Jesus is trying to get at. I can't even do this. But but he says, desiring to to justify himself. Like like instead, I'll, I'll show you. You say, I can't do it. I'll prove to you I can do it. You're just trying to make me look like the fool saying I can't do this, that I'm not good enough. And let me prove to you instead that I am. And so we come to the second hope that we find in this passage. This this hope that I think the lawyer finds himself trusting in, that I think we find ourselves trusting in. And it's the hope of ourselves. The hope that we, we will come through. Right, And so, in hoping to and trying to, desiring to justify himself by making the law something he can actually fulfill, the lawyer asks this question, and who then, Jesus, who is my neighbor? And I think he thought Jesus is going to answer very obviously, like almost rhetorical at some level. It's going to be the Israelites, obviously. Who, who is my neighbor? It's those that are a part of the nation of Israel. Because that was a prevailing thought at the time. That even rabbis, as they came to those passages in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, uh, specifically Leviticus, the, the rabbis commented on the law saying that that was only supposed to be applied to the people of Israel. It was the prevailing thought of the day. And yet a few verses later, it talks about extending the same kind of love to the foreigner and the stranger. And so there's this prevailing thought, it must just be the Israelite. That's what he's going to answer. He's going to be able to justify himself before the crowd because the law isn't so hard if all I need to do is love my fellow Israelites. I mean, it's going to be difficult. But I can do that. I can love my fellow Israelite. 
But instead of answering this question outright, kind of like the, the lawyer thinks, instead Jesus shares a parable. And this is where I think things become difficult for us because I think as we read this parable, we're so inclined to forget about this part of the section of Scripture and go straight to the parable. And we, we, we want to read our love of the hero, of, <clears throat> of the impossible into certain stories, into the things we read, and we actually, in the end, end up missing what the story is really about. I'll just be honest, I want to read the Good Samaritan passage, and I want to celebrate and be encouraged to love and serve like the Samaritan, and I want that to be what this is about. How can I become like the hero of the story? How can I become like the guy who gets it done? But Jesus here isn't sharing a parable to give us an example for us to follow so that we can have eternal life. That's not the question that he's answering This is a new question he's coming to answer. He isn't sharing, he's sharing a parable instead to explain this law of neighborly love. And in specific to answer this question, who is my neighbor? That's why he shared this story. And so as we read this in light of that lens, I think it takes on a whole different meaning all of a sudden. Because if we read it through this lens, all of a sudden the main character of the story isn't the Samaritan. It's actually the one guy that's in the whole of the story. It's a dude that was beaten and left for dead, robbed, beaten, and left half dead. Who's going to help him? Who's going to save him? Who's going to come and do what needs to be done that his life might be spared? And so here comes the first person in the story, right? It's, surely it's going to be the priest, the epitome of what it means to be an Israelite. This guy who leads the nation in worship of God. Surely the priest is going to come, and he's going to be the one to, to help To fulfill the law. Nope. (laughs) Right? And there's not even really an explanation given. And to be honest, I don't really know that there's one that's needed. Because a lot of people want to like justify this with the reality that he might have defiled himself by touching a dead body. But the dude isn't dead. So he wouldn't have defiled himself. And beyond that, it's the direction that he's walking based on the, the language of the passage. He's leaving the temple. So it doesn't even matter if he defiles himself. He's not walking into the temple. Defilement isn't even an issue. So there's no explanation here because what Jesus is trying to say is even though this dude should have been the guy, he wasn't. He didn't come through. And then we get to the the Levite, right? And we're like, okay, so it wasn't the priest. Maybe it's going to be the Levite. And so, you know, think of a Levite. If I was to explain this, think of a Levite uh, where a priest might be kind of akin to a pastor today. The Levite may be more of like a a deacon or a really, really uh, serving, dedicated church member, right? The Levites were these called out people inside of the people of God. They were this tribe that were called to help take care of the things in the temple and make sure things of worship worked. And so you would think, okay, it's not the priest, it's going to be the Levite. And so he comes up and, and in the same way, it says in the very same language, he came to the place where the man was, he saw him. And then he crossed by on the other side. So the Levite didn't come through. And so we come to this point in the story, and I think everybody in the crowd is probably thinking, oh, I know what Jesus is going to do. He's, he's trying to slam the religious elite, right? He's trying to make fun of these people who are the religious. So who's going to come next? It's, it's obviously going to be your average Joe type of Israelite. That's, that's who's going to come and help, right? Here comes the hero, But instead of anything they could have expected, Jesus jumps in and says, but next came a Samaritan. 
And can I say that this probably, obviously, based on your reaction, does not have the shock value that it would have had in Jesus' time. I think there would have been gasps, and I think some eyebrows would have been raised, and I think there would have been hands over mouths, and I think people maybe, uh, they were freaking out. Like, the Samaritan is the dude who comes in? You know, the, the Samaritans were actually, they were these people of Israel who, when they were taken captive by the Assyrians, they disobeyed God's command and they married into the Assyrian people. And they end up twisting all of these things that God has given them to understand how to worship God. And so instead, they've made their own temple and place of worship, right? They've created their own laws and their own ways of worship. They are, in fact, the epitome of everything that Israel should hate. They are defilers. They're traitors. They hate God. They do not worship him as God wants them to. They are everything that is wrong with this world, according to the Israelites. They refer to them as half-breeds. They married into another nation, right? Half-breeds. So angry were they at the Samaritans that I don't know if you guys remember a few chapters back, but as Jesus walks through Samaria and, and they, they offend him by not giving him a place to stay, James and John are like, we're done with this. Throw down fire on them. Let's kill them. Jesus, give me the power. We'll just be done with them, all right? That is, that's how much they hated the Samaritan people. And yet, this Samaritan brings with him the turn in the story. He comes to the place, the scripture says, he comes to the place where the man is, in the same language, comes to the place where the man is. He sees him. But unlike the other two characters in the story that I've come through, the Samaritan, it says, has compassion on him. And this, this is the issue. This is the characteristic that actually makes the Samaritan ultimately different. Not his nationality, not his race, nothing about who he was on the outside. What made him different is who he was in his heart, who he was in his identity, in the core of himself. It was that he showed compassion. And Jesus proves that this is actually what he was really trying to show, right? In case we're wondering, in verse 36, Jesus ends the whole parable by asking this question. Which of these three characters... In this story, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Jesus has changed the question on the lawyer here from what he asked, which was, who is my neighbor, to what does it mean for us, for me, for you to actually be a neighbor? And this makes all the difference in the world. Jesus isn't trying to set up the Samaritan as an example of who we're supposed to be like in order to obey the law. That's the question, right? What's it look like to obey this law? He's not setting up the Samaritan to do that. If that was the case, Jesus is in essence through this parable saying that we don't have to fear God. We don't have to worship him. We can twist whatever he says. We can do whatever we want. All we need to do is have compassion to any in need, and we can fulfill the law. And if that's the case, then the parable of the Good Samaritan becomes salvation by works, and it doesn't even have to be works then that are worshipful of God, of Yahweh. No, what Jesus is trying to do here is not that. What he's trying to do is he's saying that the question of who is my neighbor doesn't matter at all if I can't actually truly be a neighbor to whoever it is. The thing that separates the Samaritan from the priest and the Levite and makes him a neighbor isn't first nationality, race, or religion like the Israelites were so tempted to believe. 
Jesus has set up these two Israelite people that should have come through. They should have been the epitome of what it meant to fulfill the law. And Jesus says, look, they didn't even do it. Being an Israelite didn't make them come through. It didn't help them be a neighbor. But the Samaritan, the one who doesn't even fear God, what helped him be a neighbor was his compassion. It has nothing to do with our nationality, with our race, with who we think we are as people. It has to do with who we are in our heart. What Jesus is trying to tell the lawyer is that he will never be able to obey and fulfill this law, not because of who others were, but because of who he was in the condition of his heart, what it was like. It's the, he couldn't love He couldn't even fulfill the first part of the law, right? So the question he asks is about the part about loving my neighbor. He can't even fulfill the part about loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if he can't do that, then the love he needs to even extend to somebody else isn't even present in his heart and his life. And and he kind of proves it. Like this lawyer proves this against himself, that, that he's unable to actually be a neighbor because when Jesus uses this example of the Samaritan and then asks the question of who was the neighbor, He can't even name the Samaritan. At the end of it all, he just calls him the one who showed mercy. Can't even name the Samaritan. This is what I found so absolutely striking about this parable and so telling of my own heart and and maybe yours too. I, I wanted so badly for this parable to be something that explained what it was that I needed to do. I wanted this to be about something about something I needed to do. I wanted it to so desperately to be this story that gave me hope that if I, if I just tried hard enough, if I just cared enough, if it was in me to come through at the end of it all, I could be like the Samaritan. But instead what I found out is that I don't relate most to the Samaritan in this story. I relate most to the lawyer. That I, I want to justify myself before God and bring the law into this thing that I can fulfill But what Jesus is saying through this parable is that you can't. It's not in you. It doesn't matter who your neighbor is. You can't even be a neighbor, even if it's to your fellow Israelite. You can't even be a neighbor. You can't work hard enough. I can't obey enough. I can't do enough to love my neighbor as myself because I don't even care to love the Lord enough to obey the law. I am, in fact, the lawyer The issue is is that we need to be made a neighbor in this before we can ever truly love our neighbors. And honestly, this is where the account in Luke leaves us, right? Jesus asks the lawyer who was the neighbor, and after that, the lawyer answers to the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus tells him the exact same thing he told him at the beginning of this whole account. You go and do likewise. And you're kind of left with this like question at the end of this whole thing, right? What am I supposed to do with that? I mean, we already determined that I can't go and do. I lack the ability to go and do. And not even, even more so now, it's not that I can't even do. It's that I'm not, an, I'm in who I am, I'm not enough to come through. So, so what am I supposed to do with this? It leaves us with no hope. Everything has failed us. The law has failed. Who we are has failed. What am I supposed to do with this? And I think that's really where Luke wanted to leave us, because it just moves on, right, after this. It just it moves on to the next 
place that Jesus was at. I think he left us here because he wants to bring this full circle, right? To the third and the final hope. And truly what Jesus wants us to see, I think, as our only hope for eternal life. And that's the gospel. It's him. This whole exchange began with the challenge to the message of the good news of Jesus, right? It's this challenge, putting Jesus to the test that is this really the way to eternal life? What about the law? It's this challenge of this message that the 72 were spreading, but as it ends, it leaves, honestly, that as the only true hope for what can bring us eternal life. It will not be in the law that we find our hope or in ourselves, but in the gospel. The law condemns us and our heart betrays us, but in Jesus, we find the one true and lasting hope. He did follow the law to perfection. Jesus' heart was completely pure and undefiled in his love for God and for others. Jesus actually is the one person in human history who had every reason to rely upon himself for eternal life. But as our great example, Jesus humbly and completely submitted himself to the will of the Father. If we want an example to follow this morning, let's not look to the Samaritan, let's look to the Savior. Let's look to Jesus. Put your hope in him. And what, what Jesus does in that moment when we put our hope in him is that he doesn't just offer us salvation He actually comes in and changes us so that we can be the neighbor that he calls us to be. He works this thing in our heart and changes who we actually are in the core of ourselves that we can actually begin to fulfill the law that has been put upon us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Before Jesus, the Bible describes us as this. When we were the old man, we were dead in our spirit. We were far away from God. We were considered children of wrath. We were called slaves of sin. And at the end of the day, if we are those things, there is no hope and no way for us to get out. If that's who we are, we're done. There is no hope in this world. We are in desperate need or we will never inherit eternal life. We can't love God like we're called to. We can't love our neighbor like we need to. We can't obey the law like it specifies. But in the gospel, in Christ, we find something that changes us from the old into the new. In Jesus Christ, we are these things. These are things that the Bible declares about who we are and our identity now in Christ. We are redeemed from slavery to sin to become slaves of righteousness. We are reconciled to God, forgiven our sins, freed from the law of sin and death. We are adopted to be made children and part of the family of God. We are accepted by God, justified by Jesus, glorified with Jesus, united with Jesus, possess every spiritual blessing. We are brought close to God, delivered from the power of darkness, transferred from Satan's domain to the kingdom of God, circumcised in our hearts of stone to be made hearts of flesh, made a priesthood of believers and a part of the people of God. We receive citizenship in heaven. We become an inheritance. We receive an inheritance and we become as lights to the world. That is what the gospel has done in us this morning, brothers and sisters. We could not be neighbors before, but today, because of Jesus, because of the gospel, we have hope 
for eternal life because he has made us neighbors, because he has been the neighbor we so longed for and needed. He was the one that was to come through, not us. He was the one that made it final, not us. It is only in our new identity that we will be truly freed to obey the words of Christ, to go and do likewise. So hear this caution this morning, brothers and sisters. There are many things and people we can put our hope in, but they will all fail us. All of them. There is no hero in this world. There is no thing in this world that can save us. But in Jesus, in Jesus we can have hope. And not just a hope for this life, but a hope for eternal life. Do not let your heart be fooled into thinking it can justify itself in the law or in yourself. But instead, hear the call this morning. Come to Jesus. Hear the good news of his perfect life, his brutal death, and his victorious resurrection. Hear this morning, brothers and sisters, and put your hope again in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Find your joy in him. Find eternal life in him. Find in him, as we are dead and dying on the side of the road, find in him the one who can come and bind up the wounds of your heart, who can breathe life into somebody that's not just half dead, but completely dead, who doesn't need a donkey to carry you, bring you into the presence of God, but will actually himself by his strength and by his might bring you to the presence of the Father. And at the cost of not just two denarii, which were considered two days wages, but at the cost of his own life, consider payment for all of your wounds, all of your sins, past all of the sins into the future. Find in Jesus not the good Samaritan, but somebody much greater, somebody much better, somebody who loves the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and who has loved us, his neighbor, as himself. Find in Jesus God. Come to him, the true neighbor. Experience his love this morning. Find hope in him again and be changed by it that you might hear the call of Jesus to go and do likewise and not find despair or pride, but find hope. Let's pray. Father God, we, I, just want to ask forgiveness for my own heart and desire to be the one who comes through when you have so clearly pointed out that I can't. Would you forgive us this morning for justifying and relying and putting our hope in the things of this world and ourselves and our ability to fulfill the law? Would you help us to see the absolute desperate need we have for you? That these things will fail us. They will fall. They will crumble to pieces. But you, God, never will. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for sending him to save us, to make us new, 
that we might be neighbors to those around us. Would you send us into this world, God, full of your love, full of your spirit, looking to the example of Christ, that we might bring great glory and honor to his name as we tell all of the hope that can only be found in him. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.